She was caught in her worst shame. In her worst moment. Not one of the bad moments. Not one of the sort of tawdry moments in her life. She was caught in her worst shame. At her very worst moment. Can you imagine being in her place? In Dostoevsky's book, The Idiot, they play a game one night at a party where they decide to tell their worst sin. They're a bit drunk as they're doing it, but even in their drunken state, none dares tell the truly worst sin of their life without trying to phrase it in a way where they look like the hero at the end. This woman didn't have that chance. She couldn't phrase it. She didn't get to tell her worst sin. She was caught in her worst sin, at her worst moment, in the heart and the midst of her shame. She was having intercourse with someone not her husband. And the door burst open. And a group of men came in started pointing fingers, yelling and screaming. She tried to struggle to put on some clothes, and they drug her out of the door. And as they went down the narrow streets of Jerusalem, they were screaming what she had done. And other zealots for the law, other people who loved the law of God, heard about this and came out of their shops, some curiosity seekers, some full of indignation because she had broken the law, not just the law of her country, but the law of God. She'd broken one of the Ten Commandments. And a crowd gathered, a mob, not probably unlike what we see where mobs of religious zealots gather. And I'm not using that word in its negative connotation. People who loved the law of God, who loved God, who wanted moral purity, they grabbed her and the crowd grew and they took her up to the temple, if you can imagine. Somehow, the man with whom she was having this adulterous relationship did not get brought along. He was able to slip away. Some say it had been planned from the start and that he was supposed to slip away, and that an angry husband who knew that this was going on had set the trap. We don't know that. It's a possibility. But it didn't matter to the woman at that moment. She was being dragged down the cobblestone streets with people yelling, people spitting, people cursing. And then they got to the temple, the holy temple of God, and she was brought probably before an all-male audience and thrown in front of a rabbi whom she had probably heard about, a man named Jesus, whom some said was the long-awaited Messiah. And here she was in her worst shame at her worst moment before the long-awaited Messiah or at least a great prophet and certainly a good teacher. And every male eye was on her. She knew what would happen. The penalty for this sin in the law of God was death. 
In that day, it seems that they inflicted death by stoning, although some of the manuscripts from that era say that it was by being thrown and mangled on rocks or by rocks. We think a little while later they changed it to strangulation. It's interesting that the adultery laws were for married women only. They didn't cover extramarital relations by married men with unmarried women. There needed to be two witnesses beyond the husband. And so apparently there were several witnesses who were willing to bring forth this woman that day. In fact, during that time, right around in those days, there, there was a growing uh, respect, almost a hero worship for an Old Testament character who had achieved almost... Uh, superhero status. Phinehas, you can read about him in Numbers 25. He was a man who was so incensed when people committed adultery with those outside the Israeli nation that when he heard and actually saw that two were going into a tent to do this, an Israelite and a, and a, and a, and a foreign woman, he grabbed a spear in front of everyone and went in and plunged it through both of them. Now this was the hero during the time of Jesus as they looked back on him. There was that kind of anger, that kind of frustration, that kind of love for the holiness of God. They threw her on the ground in front of Jesus. What a great trap. Here is this man who talks about love and mercy and grace, who also talks about perfection, who has said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, but also said you must be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And here's the great trap. The law of God says she should be stoned to death. Perhaps the mercy of God says she should be pardoned. And they bring her before Jesus. John 8 tells us that it was indeed a trap. Some scholars have have said that perhaps the Jewish Sanhedrin had lost the right to execute people, and so now Jesus was in a double bind. If he said executor, he would be saying they should take into their hands something the Romans said they couldn't, so then he'd be in trouble with the Romans. If he says pardoner, he'd be in trouble with the zealots. It was a double and triple trap. And Jesus, the crowd quiets down, and Jesus stands there. The woman is trembling before him. Can you imagine what she felt? He stoops down in the ground and begins to write in, in the dust. There are many, many people who've conjectured what Jesus wrote. We don't know what he wrote. Some have suggested that he started writing the sins of the people in the crowd. Perhaps fanciful. Others suggested that he was writing Exodus 23, 7. Keep far away from a false matter, and slay not the innocent and the just, for I shall not acquit the guilty. Keep far away from a false matter. Others have suggested Exodus 23, 1. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. He sensed that this was a trap. He sensed that this woman, even though she was in sin, no question about it, was part of a larger scheme and trap. And that the crowd, the mob, 
normally upright, holy people had been caught up in this. And he quietly stooped down. Others have said he simply was showing the serenity of a judge who was in control. He was being brought, this woman was being brought to Jesus for judgment or the passing of sentence at least. Some say he stooped and wrote just to get the attention off of her for a moment in his graciousness. Then he stood up and those famous words were uttered. The man among you who has no sin, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. In their setting, the witnesses had a special responsibility for beginning the execution by casting the first stone. And I can imagine Jesus looking at the two or three witnesses right in the eye and saying, let he who is without sin among you throw the first stone at her, you witnesses. You know in your hearts this was a trap. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, some have suggested the oldest had more sins to reflect upon. I would agree with that. And they left one by one. Can you hear it from the woman's standpoint? She's sitting there and she, she's ready for the first stone to be thrown, the beginning of the stoning to happen, the end of her life, the end of her shame. And instead she hears the scuffling of feet. And people leaving. I'm sure she didn't look up. And then there's silence. While the witnesses were leaving, Jesus stooped down again to take perhaps the pressure off them. So Jesus, straightening up, said to the woman, Dear woman, where, where are they all? Hasn't anyone condemned you? No one, sir, she answered. Nor do I condemn you. You may go. But from now on, sin no more. Or as some have translated it, avoid the sin. Well, that's the story. I want to take a short side trip to let you know that it's somewhat of a preaching risk to preach on this story because it's a very disputed story in the Gospel of John. Most scholars do not believe it's from the pen of John or those who helped him edit his work. In fact, there are no comments on this passage by Greek writers in the first millennium. In fact, it's only after the year 900 that this shows up in the Greek writings. Although there's some evidence that it had a very early origin, Ambrose and Augustine, they wanted it as part of the gospel. They wanted it read in the services. It was included by Jerome in the Vulgate. There can be a good case made uh, that it had its origins in the East and was truly ancient. In fact, there's one third century story that uses it as a presumably well-known example of our Lord's gentleness, as Raymond Brown has pointed out, which would give its Syrian origin. But it was never noted as Scripture, and it does seem out of place if you read the 8th chapter of John with the 7th chapter. It seems out of place. Some have suggested it was an early story of Jesus that belonged in Luke, not John. 
Raymond Brown says this about the story. No apology is needed for this once independent story. He takes the view that it was not originally written by Johannine editors or by John himself. No apology, though, is needed for this once independent story which has found its way into the fourth gospel and some of the early manuscripts of Luke. For in quality and beauty, it is worthy of either localization. Listen to this. Its succinct expression of the mercy of Jesus is as delicate as anything in Luke. Its portrayal of Jesus as the serene judge has all the majesty we could expect of John. And the moment when the sinful woman stands confronted with the sinless Jesus is one of the exquisite dramas, a drama beautifully captured in Augustine's terse Latin formula where he says the two were there together, the one full of sin and the sinless one. The one deserving no mercy and the merciful one. And the delicate balance between the justice of Jesus in not condoning the sin and having mercy in forgiving the sinner is one of the great gospel lessons. Well, what is it that we learn from this passage, whether it belonged in Luke or John? I want to look at four things briefly. First, the question of justice. What was the right thing to do? This woman had wronged her husband. Whether he'd been a mean husband or not, she'd committed adultery. She'd snuck off, she'd planned it, and she was conducting an adulterous relationship. Whether she was brought before a trial such as we've just heard or not, she was wrong. We don't know that her husband was such a bad sort. We don't know that he was part of the trap. She'd wronged her husband and she'd wronged God. Now, what is the consequence, the just consequence for that? But it's not quite that simple when we look at the question of justice. Because the mob was there in their sin. Some of them part of a trap. Some of them setting this up. Can you think of anything more sinful than using somebody else's brokenness, somebody else's sin as a trap, as a theological trap. So they were equally there using her shame to try to bring condemnation on Jesus. That goes against the entire spirit of the law and even its letter. There is the issue of justice. There is the issue of sin. She was guilty of sin. The crowd was guilty of sin. Only Jesus was not. These two face to face, the one deserving no mercy, and I would say the crowd deserving none either, and the merciful one. The third issue is judgment. They were bringing the woman to Jesus for him to judge her. And yet he had said, I do not come into the world to judge it, to condemn it, but to save it. It's interesting that he meets the woman with mercy while not condoning her sin and specifically telling her to avoid that sin or if you want to translate it in the more general way, to avoid all sin. And he grants mercy to the mob. He convicts them of their sin and then he stoops down and writes again and gives them the chance to leave. Both were deserving judgment. 
Both were faced with their sin, and both were sent away without further consequence beyond what they'd borne already. And both were encouraged in the future, the mob implicitly, the woman explicitly, not to commit this sin again. In the place of deserved judgment, she was met with mercy. And out of that mercy came a call to live a completely holy life. Paul put it this way. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Listen to that again. God was reconciling, uniting again after an alienation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's a perfect description of what Jesus did in this passage. She was in sin. He didn't count it against her. They were in sin. He didn't count it against them. Yet he faced them with it. And he called them beyond it. Way beyond it. Paul goes on and says, And God has committed to us the same message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors. We, an ambassador brings the message of the administration. The message of this administration apparently is reconciliation of the world to God through Christ, not counting their sins against them. And yet in the model of Jesus facing them with their sins. It's we're Christ's ambassadors, Paul says, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, out of mercy, God calls us to holiness, to transformation. And that's the fourth issue I want to look at, the issue of transformation. I have people come up to me regularly through the 11 years that I've been here at Westmont, and they say, Bart, we love the way you preach about the love of Jesus. We love the way you preach about the mercy of Jesus. But we don't hear you telling us to quit sinning. You don't often say that we shouldn't have premarital sexual intercourse. You don't often say that we shouldn't abuse drugs. You don't often tell us not to cheat on our tests. You don't often tell us that we should show more respect than we do. But we, you do talk a lot about mercy. You do talk a lot about love. But don't you think you have a lopsided gospel? I had a letter from a student a while back, a very dear letter, very sincere asking me this question. In fact, I just found it and uh, realized it had gotten stuck under something. So if you're here, you'll be getting a response from me. Sorry, it was late. And that was the question. And it's a great question. Let me tell you what I think. I think true transformation in Jesus Christ, that is a life of holiness, is lived out of a call experienced in mercy. And we don't understand mercy until we understand our own sin. And we don't understand our own sin until we understand there are sins. But when we find ourselves in our sin, when we find ourselves in our worst moment, in our worst shame, and we're before Jesus and we look up in his eyes, 
You will experience mercy if you're experiencing Jesus Christ, but you will not experience a condoning of sin. You will experience absolute blanket offer of forgiveness if you turn away from that sin and turn toward Jesus. But out of that mercy, you will also hear a call to a completely different life, to a holy life. Has no one condemned you, then neither do I. But from now on, avoid this sin. Can you imagine that woman getting up from there? It's an empty patio. Jesus tells her this. She wanders off. Do you think that afternoon she was, uh, was tempted to commit adultery? How about the next day? The next week? I doubt it. She'd been transformed from within. And she'd been called out to a holy life. Let me close with a quote from the Heidelberg Catechism, written in the 1500s. These are not new thoughts. These are not my thoughts. The question they were wrestling with in this part of the Catechism was, how do we live a holy life, and what would it look like? Question number 86 of the Heidelberg Catechism. I hope you'll go back and read the other 85. Since we are redeemed from our sin and its wretched consequences by the grace of God through Christ, without any merit of our own, there's a good description of that story we just read, we just heard. We've been redeemed from our sin and its wretched consequences by grace through Christ without any merit of our own. Why must we do good works, live a holy life? Answer. Because just as Christ has redeemed us with his blood, he also renews us through his Holy Spirit according to his own image. So that with our whole life, not just our religious life, I add, so that with our whole life, we may show ourselves grateful to God for his goodness and that he may be glorified through us. Question 88. But how many parts are there to true repentance and conversion? Answer. Two. The dying of the old self. Do you think something of the old temptations in that woman died that day? I sure do. Two parts to true conversion, the dying of the old self and the birth of the new. Question 89, what is the dying of the old self? Listen to this. Sincere sorrow over our sins. And more and more to hate them and to flee from them. Sincere sorrow over our sins, and more and more to hate them and to flee from them. And last question number 90. What is birth of the new self then? Answer, complete joy in God through Christ. And a strong desire to live according to the will of God in all good works. Let's pray. Father, may we be met face to face with our sins. In our culture, we cover them up. We're even told that sin is not sin. 
In fact, we're even told that sin is good. And so we, trying to live for Christ, might be fooled by our culture, and we ask that we would be brought face-to-face with our sin, but that we would be brought face-to-face with it in the presence of Jesus. So that out of his mercy, we would hear his call to live a life like his, a holy life. That we would sorrow over our sins, but more than sorrow, we would turn from them. And more than turn from them, we would learn to hate them, knowing that they eat away the very eternal life which God came to bring us in Christ. And help us to experience the complete joy of knowing the rock of Jesus Christ, the rock of forgiveness. I want you to stay in prayer, and the choir is going to come up with a closing number that is a joyful number and has to do with the rock of Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual, it's called Elijah Rock. And it refers to the fact that our joy is found in Christ. Our joy is found in the rock, which is Jesus Christ. And when they've completed their song, which will be our closing act of worship, you'll be dismissed.